We've been going through a series of First and Second Samuel. It's really one book, and today you'll actually hear me reference something from officially Second Samuel, but it actually is all one book, and so you know it's okay for me to cross those lines. It's, that's fine. In fact, even chapter divisions didn't exist when it was originally written, and so the fact that we have these chapter divisions, that's all sort of added later on and that kind of stuff, all that number stuff, it just makes it easier. But we've been in this series for a number of weeks now, and today I believe is week number nine, we are trying to pursue God through this book, because this is a book of a whole bunch of people who are pursuing something. You'll see a woman who's pursuing the desire to have a child, and then you'll see a guy who's pursuing a kingdom, and then you'll see one person who's pursuing another person, and all kinds of pursuits are happening in this story, but behind the scenes there is one person who is doing most of the pursuing, and it's God. We've seen God time and time again say in the context of this book that he is looking for a particular kind of person who is looking for God. God is pursuing the person who would pursue him back. And no one is more important in that sort of idea than David himself. We learned a couple weeks ago, we learned at the beginning of this series, we've seen it multiple times, that David, according to God, is a man after God's own heart. And God was pursuing David because David had some character qualities that were similar to God's own heart, but also because David was pursuing God back. Now, before we get too deep into today's study, I'm going to give you the punchline up front. I'm going to give you the big idea up front. From chapter 18 through chapter 20, there is one big point that the writer is trying to make. And the point is that God is with David, and most people love him for that. They love David because God is with David, but Saul hates him. It's a very simple way of understanding this sort of overarching context of these three chapters. But you're going to see it time and time again. You're going to see God with David. That phrase is repeated a lot of times. You're going to see God moving in David's life. That is evident in the story that happens. And you're also going to see people respond to David with love. Multiple people respond to David with love. But Saul never does. What I want to do is I want to show you just a couple of these different verses of people you know, responding to God's work in David with love. I'll put them up here on the screen. In chapter 18, verses 3, 16, and 20, we read these words. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Then also in verse 16, all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And then in verse 20, Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David. Sometimes I'll pronounce her name Michael, sometimes I'll pronounce it the Hebrew way, which is Michal. Um, but either way, however I say it, it's, it's a girl. It's not my last name, okay? It's, it's, it's different. Anyway, these are people who loved David, but Saul did not. See what it says about Saul. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. You see, what's going on here is that God is moving in David's life. And some people see that and they're like, wow, God is moving in David's life. We love David too. But Saul has this weird thing going on inside his heart inside his mind, where instead of being drawn towards David and the fact that God is with David, Saul is being repulsed by David. 
Whether it's because of jealousy or fear or anger or any number of things, all of these things show up in this passage. But ultimately, it's that Saul sees God in David and sees the people love David, and Saul does not want to join in. And so the point of today's message, I'm going to give you right up front, By the end of today, I hope you'll be motivated to say a yes to this basic statement. It's that if God is moving anywhere in this world, I'm going to be the kind of person who joins in no matter what the cost. You see, the people of Israel didn't have much to lose with David fighting all their battles. Michael didn't have much to lose with her loving David. She ended up becoming his wife. Jonathan actually had something to lose. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But Saul perceived that he had too much to lose. And Saul was the kind of person who would say, it doesn't matter if God's in it. What matters is what I have to give up. And we need to be the kind of people who do exactly the opposite. We need to be the kind of people who say, it doesn't matter what I have to give up. It only matters if God is in it. That's the kind of question that we need to ask. That's the kind of attitude that we need to have. And so we're going to cover Samuel, 1 Samuel 18 through 20. We're going to skim over a lot of it because the story is important, the context is important, but I don't have time today to get into all the details. Some things, however, we will go into the details on, and in fact, this first verse will reveal it. Verse 1, chapter 18. After David has, had finished talking with Saul... Remember, this is after the Goliath thing. David goes, he conquers Goliath, and then he starts working for Saul. And so now, after David has finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Now, I'm pausing there for just a moment, because this passage is one of the example passages in the Bible for ways that people bring our own ideas and layer them over top of what the Bible says in very specific ways. In this case, in this verse, the issue is homosexuality. Uh, This is a passage where lots of people have gone to to say Jonathan and David loved each other. This is an expression of homosexuality in the Bible. And I'm not saying this because I'm trying to nitpick something out there in the world. This is a very, very common biblical interpretation for what is happening here in this passage. And there's some reason for it. People who who hold this position have some reason for it. I'm going to show you just a couple more verses right now that give sort of the ammunition for the people who would say this is all about homosexuality. homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David. The next verse we're going to see at the end of today, it's in verse uh, 41 of chapter 20. It says, after the boy had gone, a boy who was going to be like a messenger for some bad news from Saul to David, David got up from the south side of the stone where he was hiding and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. It's obvious that there's some kind of loving relationship here. And then icing on this cake comes in 2 Samuel chapter 1. David hears about Jonathan's death and he replies to Jonathan's death this way. David says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. 
Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. And so the idea that people have taken from this love relationship between Jonathan and David is that it must have been an expression of homosexuality that was sort of whitewashed in the context of Scripture, never really made explicit. And there's just one problem with that. Jonathan didn't believe it was a homosexual relationship. Neither did David. David, here in this verse, calls Jonathan my brother. And he compares Jonathan's love as something that is more wonderful than that of not woman, singular, women, plural. There is no, there's no, it's not like he's talking about a specific physical relationship. He's talking about the general idea of loving women is totally different from what he's got with Jonathan, his brother. And then what Jonathan said in 1 Samuel 20, 42 is this. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. When David departs, we'll get to that at the end of the story. When David departs from the area where Saul is, you know, is the king, this close little area, Saul and, excuse me, Jonathan and David depart with this idea that they have made a covenant of friendship with each other. And so I just want to draw one observation from this. We live in a very complicated world, but one of the ways we have complicated our own world is that we have tied, at least in our society, but in many societies before us, we have tied the ideas of love and sex together. We have tied those things so closely together that anytime someone in our world is talking about some form of sexuality, what they use is the words love. People are able to love whomever they wish. That's one of the phrases that is used in our world today. But the assumption behind that is that love and sex are somehow linked with each other. And the Bible and history has demonstrated time and time again that no, In fact, more sex has been done outside of the context of love in human history than inside. And, as a matter of fact, more love has happened in the context of human history without sex than with. And that is because love and sex are two completely different things. There might be places where they intersect. There might be places where they relate to each other. But the idea of two people loving each other and the idea of two people having some sort of physical relationship with each other are two completely different concepts. And the thing that we have to grasp is that love does not mean sex. Love does not equal sex. When I first met my wife's family, I was so in love with her. She was going to introduce me to her family because that, must, that meant that she loved me because, I mean, this was, a big, this was a big thing. I remember the day I walked through the first door to the first connection to the first member of Jen's family that I was meeting face to face, and it was her grandmother, and it was immediately followed by a kiss right on the lips. I walked into that door and it was like, and I was just 
stunned. Like, what just happened? You know? And then, as I stepped aside, I noticed this happening to everyone. Jen grew up in a family where literally 100% of the women in the family greeted literally 100% of the other members of the family with a kiss on the lips. And all of the men, when it was a man greeting a man, it was a shake of the right hand. But when it was a woman meeting a man or a woman meeting another woman in any context that was familial, including me, who was just dating the girl, we weren't engaged yet, but just as long as you were sort of under this umbrella of family, it was kiss moment when you greeted each other. And I kid you not, I'm definitely telling you the truth, there was nothing sexual about it. I walked into that house and I was thinking to myself, well, that was new. <laughs> but see, here's the thing. We have grown up in, and we have developed ourselves into this complicated society where now Disney will put out a Star Wars movie that will have two male characters who have a strong friendship and people in the world are upset that Disney didn't make obvious what everybody else thought was obvious about these two guys' relationship. Or there will be a children's movie with, with cartoons and two kids having a loving relationship with each other in the movie and the same sort of thing comes out. And it's time for us to do this amazing thing where we recognize that we should love other people. Where we recognize that we should love everyone. Where we recognize that love extends way, way farther than physicality. Where we understand because we're the people who know what love really is. Where we're the people who say love can go way farther than anything physical can go. And so when Jonathan and David are in love with each other, and you can say in love with each other, when they have such a covenantal love with each other, it has no sort of overtones of anything else. It's just this amazing thing that two guys are like, we have a kindred spirit. And today, I'll show you exactly why they have a kindred spirit, and I think it'll blow your mind. But it'll be encouraging nonetheless. That's just verse 1. I promise you we're not going to take this much time on all the other verses, but let's keep going because what happens here in this chapter is just really incredible. And the main point in this chapter is something way different than the relationship between Jonathan and David. Skip to verse 2. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And it's like, wait a minute, that's, that's weird. Why is Jonathan doing this? There are two things that you have to picture from this little account. First, David is now being kept by Saul. Jonathan is now giving to David. Saul is saying, I have to hold David close to me. Keep your enemies even closer, right? Or whatever. And Jonathan is like, no, I need to give to David. And it's especially important to realize what Jonathan is giving. Jonathan gives David his robe. That's a symbol of royalty, Jonathan gives David his tunic. That's a symbol of his person. 
Jonathan is like, I am making myself in submission to you. I am giving you authority over my person. And remember, it's the same kind of thing that Saul did last week with Goliath. Saul tried to give David Saul's tunic so that David would go out there and people might think that the guy defeating Goliath was actually Saul because he was wearing Saul's clothing and stuff. But David doesn't take Saul's tunic, but he takes Jonathan's tunic. But then... Did you notice he also gave David his sword? If you've been with us this whole time, you know there's something very special about Jonathan's sword. Right? Jonathan's sword was number two in the land. There were only two iron swords in the entirety of all Israel. Jonathan had one of them. Let me take you back to that. It says, So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Jonathan and Saul had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Other people might have had bronze something or others, but Saul and Jonathan had iron swords. And Jonathan gives David his sword. You see, what Jonathan is doing here in this moment, and this is really, really super important. What Jonathan is doing here in this moment is he is crowning David king. He is saying to David, because they, they didn't have an actual crown back then. Jonathan is saying to David, you get to wear the robe of the heir. You get to wear the tunic of the heir. You get to wear the sword of the heir. No one in this country has a sword except for the current king and the next king. David, that's what Jonathan is doing. He is establishing David as the real next king. And that's true because he is. David is the real next king. David has been anointed. Samuel anointed David. God told David he would be the next king. David didn't tell anyone else. We don't know. But maybe he told Jonathan. But at least Jonathan knows it. And so here's our first little tidbit of, of encouragement to you. First little blank to write down of a thing that I should remember. If God honors someone, I should honor them too. If God honors someone, we should honor them too. If God is going to move, I want to be the kind of pe- person who joins in. And so if God is honoring someone, I should join in. I should honor them too. Let's keep going. Pick it up in verse uh, 13. Actually, Yeah, we'll read five. It says this, Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands... And David, his tens of thousands. That just means whatever Saul has done, David does ten times better. They just like David more. It's clear. But verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Listen, First of all, Saul has not been in many battles. We've only seen him successfully be in like one, right? So far in this story. He has not been in that many battles. David, however, has gone into battle after battle after battle and has been successful. Number two, 
Every time David wins a victory, who's the one who's the king? Saul. So who gets the credit for the victory that David wins? It should be Saul. Saul gets the big picture credit, even though the people are real big fans of David, as you would be. But the thing Saul says is so outlandish. He says, what can, Ga- what can David get now except the whole kingdom? Duh, he already has the kingdom. He's already the next king. Saul, give up on this. This is not going to go well for you. But Saul is just so uptight with some sort of idea of what he thinks the future should be that he is unwilling to enter in to the glory of the present moment. Here's another thing I'd like you to write down. If God gives someone victory, you should celebrate too. Man, it's so difficult for us. We're the kind of people where when, when God moves in someone else's life, we get jealous. And we're like, well, God, why didn't you move in my life? And then we let our jealousy work into frustration. God, I'm so irritated that you're moving in other people's lives and you're not moving in my life. And then we let our frustration and irritation morph into this weird sadistic hope that the other person will actually prove to be terrible. This person is getting blessed by God, but we're just hopeful that they're going to fall. They're going to make some mistake. They're going to prove God wrong, that God was, God was wrong to have blessed them so much. And so we're going to watch them fall, and we're going to be like, well, see, they didn't have much character, or they didn't have much smarts, or they made a stupid decision. We're going to come up with all kinds of reasons why they weren't nearly as good, so that then we can maybe say, okay, so maybe it wasn't God's blessing, or whatever. We do all kinds of weird stuff. But the one thing we almost never do is to say, wow, God is blessing you. I'm so glad God is blessing us. And just to claim that when God blesses one human being, it's God moving. And that's a cool thing. And in this particular case, oh my goodness, if David wins, Saul wins. Uh, Let me just give you this mental picture. If God is with David, and if David is with Saul, then God is with Saul. And that's a good thing. And if God does a victorious work in this person's life, and you are in a relationship with this person, then God has done a work for you too. We get into such a weird place of jealousy when it comes to what God is doing. But no, if God gives someone victory, we should celebrate too. Look at verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Well, is it any wonder when Saul experiences jealousy towards David, the immediate next response is that Saul experiences this evil spirit all over again? came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house. Quick comment. Remember the word prophesying does not always mean a person who is telling the future. Prophesying in the book of Samuel often means a person who is having a spiritual moment. A person, they might be in a trance, they might be in in an ecstatic place of some kind. They might be worshiping, they might be dancing, they might be doing something, but they're having a spiritual moment. The word prophecy refers to that in the book of Samuel. We've seen it before, we'll see it again today. 
But Saul is prophesying even though he's in this evil spirit sort of mode. Anyway, David is playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. I still don't know what that twice is all about. Did Saul have two spears? The first one missed and he grabbed the second one? Or did Saul have a messenger go, get the first spear, bring it back to Saul, tell David, no, it's okay, keep playing, and then later throw the spear again? I don't know, but the twice, just, I want to know more of this story. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, it's fascinating. But Saul is like, no, I would rather kill the one God is working in. Here it is, look at verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him. This is the kind of thing that I've seen a lot of times in in my life. I've seen people encounter God's work. They get close to God's work. God is doing something in and around their lives. But something when God moves always shakes us up a little bit. That's the way life works. When God is ready to move in a person's life, oftentimes that movement of God will destabilize something in that person's life. And so as God is moving in that person's life, the things in that life begin to get destabilized and that person is like, oh no, I'm feeling uncomfortable now. I'm not getting it right. And so as a result, whatever it was that was God's blessing to them, they push that away because it's better for me to find the place of stability even though the instability was where God was working. We do this all the time. I've seen it in other people's lives. I've seen it in my life where it's like as God begins to move, something in my life feels uncomfortable. And rather than just sitting and soaking and embracing what God is doing, I will push away the thing God is doing. And I will remove myself from it because it's just more comfortable over here where it's safe. I can't tell you the number of times I've been in a conversation with a person where I saw God moving in their life and they saw instability. And I saw a need for them to open themselves up to what God was doing and they saw a need to remove themselves to protect themselves from something that wasn't comfortable. And here's Saul in this story. And he sees the Lord is with David. This isn't something where everybody else saw the Lord was with David and and Saul didn't see it. No, Saul was mad at David because the Lord was with David. And the Lord is no longer with Saul. And instead of Saul saying, I want to get back together wherever the Lord is, I want to be wherever the Lord is. If God is with David and David is with me, then I'm with God. Saul could have said that. He could have said, I'm just going to be wherever David is. But no, Saul says, I'm done. I'll kill him. And if I can't kill him, I'll push him away. Because sometimes... That's just the kind of people we are. It breaks my heart. And I'm going to tell you, I say this every single year two or three times. 
every single time you're a part of a church, you have joined a group that is intrinsically going to be infuriating blessings. You have joined a group of people where these two words work every year. Infuriating blessings. In other words, children. Okay? Uh, You know what I mean if you've had kids. If you don't have kids, you were one and your parents were infuriating and then later on you realize that they were the blessing in your life in many cases. But it's this idea that the very thing that just absolutely makes me frustrated, angry, is the thing God is using in my life to bring blessing. In a church, in a marriage, in a family, you see this all the time. And I want to just say, listen, if you ever see God moving, go deeper. Don't ever run away. Don't ever run away from that uncomfortable thing that God is doing. No, go deeper with it. And Saul can't do that. Pick it back up in verse 13. I'm going to read a little bit more. 13, so he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And just a quick comment, Saul can't respond to what's true about David and what God is doing in David's life because something in Saul is causing him to be afraid. Fear is one of those things that can grab onto you and can make you literally miss out on all that God is doing. But let's remember this. If God is with David and David was with Saul, that's a good thing. Saul could be all afraid. Oh no, God's with David and not with me. No. Saul could be all jealous. Oh, God is with David and not with me. No. Saul could be worried. God's with David. He's going to get the kingdom and not me. No. None of those things are true. If God is with David and David is with Saul, then that's a good thing, Saul. Embrace it. And for you and for me, if God is moving somewhere in this world, that's a good thing. Draw closer to it. Embrace it. Now, the rest of this story in chapter 18 and a lot of 19 and a lot of 20, I'm going to summarize because uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I want you to read it, but there's also a couple passages that I don't want to spend too much time talking about because they're gross. I will read the passage, you will find out why they're gross, and you will also thank me for not spending a lot of time talking about it, okay? But I'll give you a quick little summary. What happens next is that Saul wants to find a way to trick David into doing something that will get David killed. And so Saul says, what I'll do is I'll give David my daughter Merab as a wife, but then I'll make David do something for me that ends up in getting David killed. And so Saul says, well, I want you to marry Merab, my daughter. And David says, what are you, nuts? I don't want to be the son-in-law to the king. There's a lot of pressure that comes with that. And so Saul says, fine. And so Merab marries another person. 
But then he discovers that Michael, or Michal, his other daughter, actually has fallen in love with David. Verse 20. It says, Now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. And so he comes up with a plan. I'm going to use my daughter Michal to get David into trouble because now she actually loves him. And so then Saul goes to David. He says, Okay, David, we're going to do this thing with Michal. You want to marry her? And I I tell you what, and then he, he does this other thing, verse 25. Okay, this is, um, this is gross. Get ready. Saul replied to his servants, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Uh, He wants David to go and attack a whole bunch of Philistines, killing a hundred of them and doing what's necessary to return this trophy to him, to Saul. And he knows that that's going to be an inconvenient and difficult task, and most likely David will get killed in the process. That's his strategy. Okay, now it doesn't work for Saul because as a matter of fact, David actually is successful. He gets a couple guys to join him, and they kill 200 Philistines, twice as many as he's supposed to. And he returns the trophy to Saul. It's gross. But anyway, skip to verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, second time, second time it said that. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The question for you and me is this. When God moves, how am I going to respond? Am I going to be like one of those people who responds with jealousy or anger or frustration or fear? Or am I going to be one of those people who responds by jumping in, by going closer, by joining in, by embracing what God is doing? Chapter 19 and 20 give us just a couple more stories that are interesting. Uh, In chapter 19, Saul tries to throw a spear at David again, and David this time uh, misses out on it and uh, runs away. But um, basically what happens is that Saul tries to kill David. Jonathan intervenes. Uh, David comes back. Uh, Saul then throws the spear. Then David runs away again. But pick up the story in verse 18, because in verse 18, something weird happens, and this is really cool, I think. When David had fled and made an escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah. So David runs away to Samuel. He shows up again in the story here. And told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Nioth and stayed there. When word came to Saul, David is in Nioth at Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Nioth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Nioth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Nioth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. 
This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Okay, now first of all, that nakedness thing. Um, There are a couple times in the prophets, the books of the prophets, where God would say to some prophet, hey, I want you to strip naked as an example of the shame of the people of Israel. Saul, I don't know why he's naked here. It's just one of these weird things where he's just sort of like loopy. He's in the middle of this sort of spiritual trance, and it's like the clothing is just too too cumbersome. And so he just get rid of it all, lays on the ground, and he doesn't care what people think of him, which is weird because Saul always cares what people think of him. But in this moment, the Holy Spirit has come on him, and he is just in that moment. But here's the interesting thing. God had left Saul, right? God was no longer with Saul. But Saul gets close to where Samuel and David are, and boom, the Spirit is all over him. And not just all over him, all over all the men who showed up there. He sends a troop of men. They just have the Holy Spirit come all over them. He sends another troop of men, Holy Spirit all over them. He sends another group of men, Holy Spirit all over them. Anyone who gets close to Samuel and David, it's just like there's this umbrella of God's Spirit around Samuel and David, and anyone who gets close to him is just like overwhelmed with the presence of God. Samuel, David, these are men who have the awareness of the Spirit of God with them, and you just have to get near them to experience it. But Saul has for so long been pushing Samuel and pushing David away from him. It's an amazing expression to me of God's grace. That Saul, this guy who keeps pushing God away, pushing God's people away, Saul who's selfish, Saul who's jealous, Saul who's afraid, when he gets near to where God is, God will be all over him too. Such grace. But like Saul... I'm going to encourage you, if God is moving, draw near. Because see, here's the thing, you can get in on it. You don't have to feel jealous, you don't have to feel threatened, you don't have to feel afraid, you can join it. You can get in on it, because when God is doing something, it's not just for that one person. When God is doing something, he's doing something for a whole bunch of people, and you can get in on it. Now, chapter 20 I'm going to summarize, but read a couple more verses from it. First, David and Jonathan get together and they come up with a scheme to test Saul, whether or not Saul is actually going to try to kill David again. This is in verse 5. It says, So David said, Look, tomorrow's the new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he's determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father. The reason I'm, stop, I'm stopping there, and I wanted you to see these verses, is that David is saying to Jonathan, we're going to come up with a scheme so you can see if your dad really wants to kill me. If your dad has a hot temper about me being gone, that means he doesn't like me, he's trying to kill me. But if your dad is like, eh, whatever, then it means he's okay with me you know, taking care of my family or something like that. Jonathan and David are coming up with this scheme. But the thing that fascinates me is David refers to himself 
as Jonathan's servant. Did you see it? David and Jonathan have made this covenant. Jonathan gave David his robe, his tunic, his belt, his sword. Jonathan said to David, you're the king. Jonathan said to David, listen, I know that God is working with you, and so I'm going to give you everything I have, everything about me. I'm devoting my life to you, David. And David says to Jonathan, I'm your servant. Here's something that is going to be a challenge for many of us. But if God ever moves in your life, stay humble. David is this guy that God is just blessing over and over. God is just experiencing all this blessing, and yet he says to Jonathan, I'm your servant. If God ever moves in your life, stay humble. But now look at verse 12. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan doesn't just recognize that David is the next king. He also recognizes that his family is David's enemy. Because Jonathan is in the family of the current king, the only way for David to become king is for David to conquer his enemies, including the people who would be loyal to the first king. And Jonathan is already aware of this. And he says, David, you're supposed to be the king. And I know that's going to bring a whole lot of mess into my life. So at least... Look after my family. What Jonathan is doing there is exactly the same thing that David just did. Jonathan sees God moving in David, but Jonathan is staying humble. If if you see God moving in someone else, stay humble. It's okay. If God is moving in your life, it's not because of you, it's because of God. If God is moving in someone else's life, it's okay. God can do that. He's allowed to move in someone else's life. Let him and join it. So if you are experiencing God's move, in humility, you join what God is doing. And if you aren't experiencing God's move, then in humility, you support what God is doing. This is an amazing thing that's going on. God is moving in David, and some people are responding with love, but Saul can't. He responds with anger and jealousy and hatred. And the question for you and me is, if God moves in this world, what am I going to be doing? How am I going to respond? Let's finish up this chapter. Verse 30 says this, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Jonathan is losing all kinds of credibility with his own dad because he is standing up for what God wants. Verse 35, in the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. 
And he had a small boy with him. Skip ahead to 41. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. You see, Jonathan responds to the work of God well. God is moving in David. God is with David. Most people love it. But Saul is jealous and afraid. Saul is so afraid of what he's going to lose that he can't see what he will gain. Before I end today, I want to show you one little parallel that can hopefully make this more personal and more present day for you. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day we celebrate Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem and all these people love him and God is moving and all these people are so excited about what God is doing and they're waving the palm branches and they're saying Hosanna to the son of David as Jesus is coming into this town and all these people are just in love with what God has been doing through Jesus and in love with what God will do through Jesus except it very quickly gets uncomfortable. It gets uncomfortable for the religious leaders and it gets uncomfortable for the normal people too. Let me show it to you in the book of Luke. I'll just put it up on the screen. It says this, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a cult there. Let's keep going. He says, which no one has ever ridden, untie it and bring it here. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Kind of a re-echo of the Christmas story. You know, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And they're saying, God has done all these miracles. We see what God is doing. It's so great. We want to respond to what God is doing. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And this is, this is the part I wanted to show you. He wept over it and said, If you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. See, I don't know if you realize this, but the reason Jesus is killed just a week after this triumphal entry is specifically because he came into the city and everybody was excited about the miracles he had done. 
But once he entered the city, he goes to the temple and starts kicking people out of the temple. And that's uncomfortable to them. They don't know what the Messiah kicking people out of the temple is really all about. The Pharisees don't know what a Messiah who's riding in on a donkey like this and not being a victorious king, they don't know what that's all about. Everybody is so uncomfortable with this unsettling thing. It's instability. That's the problem. And what we have to do is we have to get rid of this instability and stand away from it and say, no, I want to be where it's safe and stable and peaceful. And whatever that's all about, no, let's kick that to the curb. In fact, let's kill it. Palm Sunday is the Sunday where you and I are put in that intersection between God who is so amazing and God who leads to instability. And we have to be the kind of people who say, if God is moving, I'm joining, as opposed to, if God is moving, I'm pushing it away. Jesus enters in. David has victory. God has worked in the same way in the past and in the present, and he will continue to work this way. I'll put it to you this way. If you ever see Jesus, receive him, no matter what the cost, no matter what you think you're going to lose, no matter what it looks like you're going to be facing this instability of life. If you see Jesus, if he's moving in this world, if there's a person or a thing that has the character quality of Jesus, a person or a thing that is after his own heart, join it. Receive Jesus. Participate in the work that God is doing. And don't be afraid. Don't be worried. Don't be jealous. Step in. Because if God is with Jesus and Jesus is with you, that's a good thing. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.